let's just tell different stories. Let's treat talent and the actors, actresses, people in a different way. Let's change how Hollywood is run. And so what we're trying to do is change just how old the structures are in Hollywood and how antiquated all of it is. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Okay, guys. So I know I tend to say that interviews that I post that day are my favorites, but really today's interview was one of my absolute favorites. This is with someone who I actually just met last year, but felt like an instant brotherhood, sisterhood with. Over the span of his 20-year career, Nick Rothod has built a reputation of building successful campaigns, businesses, governmental and non-governmental institutions, and as a key advisor to the nation's leaders. So in government, Nick has served as special assistant to the president and deputy director for intergovernmental affairs in the White House, and was also the director of intergovernmental affairs for the Obama-Biden transition team. Nick has also built a number of nonprofit organizations. Most notably, Nick was the founder and first executive director of the State Innovation Exchange. Nick has most recently served as the campaign manager for Beto's race for governor of Texas. And, you know, on top of that, he has built successful small businesses and is now currently the president of Impact and a founding partner in People of Culture Studios in Hollywood, California. And look, guys, I'm not even done with the list of his accomplishments. You'll also hear in the interview about some more projects that he's working on, some really cool projects. I may have volunteered myself to DJ at the launch of some of them next year. You know, why not? Because at the end of the day, the podcast is really all about me. Honestly, Nick is one of those undercover badasses that has done so much in his professional journey, is sincerely the kindest to everyone, and really never asks for the spotlight. We need more people like Nick in this world. That's all I gotta say. So please enjoy my super fun interview with Nick Rathod. I'm so happy we're doing this. Oh, I'm so excited. Thanks for thinking of me. I mean, it's it's so awesome of you. A, of course. B, you know, we met last year. We did the panel together at Impact. You know, I knew of the things that you have done. But when I was researching you this morning, I was like, holy shit, you have done a lot of stuff. <laughs> Which I had a, a, an idea of it because of the panel we did together. But yeah. digging deep, I was like, huh. Like, you are a undercover badass. You've done so much stuff. I'm like, I don't even, I don't even know how to put this in an hour. This is amazing. <laughs> I'm not good at, I guess, marketing myself or promoting myself. So I, it's uh, this will be good to maybe get some of it out there. That's how my husband is, too. Whenever there's any articles out on him, I'm like, but you have to post this. Like you, I know it's annoying, it's weird and it feels douchey and you're exactly like him. You guys are like badasses, but don't want to like <laughs> have the spotlight, which at the end of the day, we need more of that kind of attitude. I think these days probably. Yeah. But it's good in like platforms like this, you know, where you have like a, an amazing interviewer. I don't know. It just feels safe. Good. That's that's all I care about. Safe, 
your story, your way, and just have fun and let's talk and chat. And I can brag about you. So I'm allowed to do that. You don't have to do any of it. And so, okay. Well, happy new year. I cannot believe it's almost the end of January. First of all, congrats. I don't know if you started the role, but you are, you have joined the People of Culture Studios as president of its new impact division. So let's rewind a little bit. Talk to me about POC Studios. Is that like a branch of POC? And then give me a little bit about the history of it and how you joined. Yeah, well, I know we'll get into this, but I have been thinking a lot about the power of culture and using it as a as a platform to affect change. And in the Beto campaign, you know, that I ran in Texas, a big part of what we set up in the campaign was to connect with Harry Styles and Lizzo and those people. And what was incredible to me was just how powerful those platforms, those people are to reaching young people, to reaching people you don't normally get to talk to in a political environment or in campaign environment. And so I've been thinking a lot about that, especially post-campaign. And I got connected to a friend of a friend named Labid Aziz, who was an executive in Hollywood. He had built a studio prior called Wayfair and left a couple years ago to build his own studio called People of Culture Studios. And the whole idea behind the, the studio was basically sort of the theory I just laid out. Like, what does it mean when people of color are running And not necessarily people of color, people of culture, I guess, are running a major Hollywood studio. So this studio is not one that's specific to, for example, a particular community, any of that sort of thing. It's mainstream content, but through the voices and lenses of people who look like me and you. And so bringing our experiences in, bringing our cultural background in, all of those types of things into a feature film, animation film, or an action movie, or you know, even documentaries and things like that. So that's the whole idea behind it. When I met him, you know, he was like a brother from another mother. We got connected, and we decided to start go off and, and build this thing. And so we're right in the middle of, of um, you know, it's very much a startup. Uh, it's been around for a couple of years. We do have a slate of films, but um, we're now in a fundraising round to capitalize and 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 to grow it. So I'm excited about it. This is exciting times. I know 2023, at least I'm obviously looking at a podcasting industry, and I know a lot of founders for various podcast networks are now having to sell or kind of step back because raising capital, raising money last year was really tough. How has it been for you guys? Well, we're just kind of starting out, but so far the conversations have been good. I think there is fatigue in sort of the investor donor class. The thing that's particularly unique about this, and I think why I'm hoping will be successful, is that my networks in politics are a little bit different from the the traditional folks that people go to for for capital. And these are people that are successful in business or in some other sort of thing, but they've been mostly capitalizing and investing in things like nonprofits or campaigns or things like that. The thing we're doing, I think, is to design and build a different medium of a different vehicle of voice through the Hollywood channels. And I think I can get those people who normally invest in things like campaigns or nonprofits to put money behind this because it is a a mechanism to advance particular narratives or at least show and highlight different stories and communities and that sort of thing that you wouldn't otherwise get on 
cable news or listening to a Biden speech, which, you know, people are now tuning out of all of those things. But people still watch feature films. People like the Barbie movie was incredible. I mean, it was like talking about the patriarchy and gender roles and all of those sorts of things. And middle America, places I grew up in, you know, are consuming it and learning about an issue in a different way that's not in a hostile political cable news context. It's always, if you can educate and entertain at the same time, it's probably the best way to get the story through. It's very powerful. So I don't want to call it a requirement, but I don't know, lack of better word. I guess to be part of the studios and to, to make a film with you guys, do you have to be a person of color or how does that work? How do you decide who to work with? I think it really is about the types of stories more than anything else. So in fact, our, our creative director, Andy Cosby, was behind John Wick and a bunch of other you know comic book movies and that sort of thing. He's a white guy, but he's just down, super cool. you know. And so it's not like that. But what it is, is like, let's just tell different stories. Let's treat talent and the actors, actresses, people in a different way. Let's change how Hollywood is run. And the strikes are really good example of just how old the structures are in Hollywood and how antiquated all of it is. And so what we're trying to do is change that through the studio. I love the fact that you said people that look like us, people of culture, but also making these stories mainstream instead of having it to be a particular niche. I love that you guys are doing that because I don't think anyone else is yet. So I think that's very, very important. With this podcast, you know, you and I have talked, you know, obviously it's a South Asian focused podcast, but the stories are mainstream, right? Our narratives are mainstream. It just happens to be through the lens of the, our community. But I want these stories to resonate with anyone because they should. They are. They are everyone's stories, right? So so I love that you're doing that with with film at the studio. So, so your role in particular, so this is, you know, from my Google search, you are overseeing both unscripted and scripted production, as well as partnerships with studios and other companies on nonprofit initiatives. And then you're also working with political candidates, right? So explain your role and what it entails. And did you get to put your role together yourself? Like, did you customize it? Yeah, I don't think there's anything like this in Hollywood, you know, where, you know, I've spent about 20 years in politics, you know, at at the highest levels to the grassroots to, to everything. And so, I want to try to bridge Hollywood and and DC together. What we're trying to do is like, you know, there's a lot of great stories and voices here in DC that doesn't necessarily translate to Hollywood. And people always got excited about, you know, when I was coming up, like the West Wing was a great show that got people excited about government and politics and that sort of thing. And there was interweaving of stories that were happening in DC into the scripts of that show. And, And we've seen that before. So my role, I think, is to try to do that on a number of different sort of platforms like scripted, unscripted content, working with other studios to maybe advise them. Like, you know, for example, let's go back to the Barbie movie. If they wanted to talk about gender roles or that sort of thing, I have like a whole set of experts and people at my disposal here because of the work I've done who can help inform, I can bring in to help really inform it in a smart way. So that's a lot of what the role is and what we're going to try to build out. And maybe to put it like bluntly, (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like through you and your connections and your network and what you've built the past 20 years, you're also maybe able to tap into investors 
DC money that usually doesn't go into Hollywood normally? Yeah. Okay. That's okay. Just yeah. making that's what it seemed like, but I was like, I don't know if I should call yeah. that out or <laughs> basically getting the money. But that's super interesting. And that, you know, you know, I interviewed Cal Penn like a year and a half ago. I'm sure you know him. But like the whole conversation was his his two personalities, Hollywood and DC. Yeah, no, Cal is a very dear friend of mine. And he's been about that. You know, he's 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 had a foot in both worlds and in different ways. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of power in that if you're able to capture it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very special dichotomy to capture if you can be part of both part of both of it. I mean, you know, like with Hassan Minaj, you know, and Patriot Act. And interestingly, it's a lot of South Asians that are doing it. I know. So yeah, it's pretty cool. I want to get into the <laughs> South Asian relationship with politics. But you know, I think in general, it's an obvious statement here, but we're all beat down by politics in general. I think everyone around in in this country definitely. I'm around the world really. And so could not think of a better time for you guys to kind of combine the two worlds, right? So it's so super exciting. You mentioned Barbie. We watched it for the third time this weekend. <laughs> and I keep laughing every time. It's so genius. But my first interview this year was with Mega Tolia. She is the COO of Shondaland. You should definitely connect with her. She's a, a great, great friend and just a powerhouse. And when you're talking about having brown characters kind of seamlessly in the mix without having to check the box... That's what she was talking about through Shondaland, what Shonda has done. She has seamlessly incorporated these characters and these stories who happen to be brown characters, you know, about their, their narrative. But it's not like a, it doesn't feel like a kind of check the box, a DEI story kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's the direction I think the world should be going. People always like, especially Hollywood in the last several years, especially in the wake of George Floyd, you know, they had hired a bunch of these DEI folks, which is great and more power to them for doing that. But in recent months, actually, they fired most of them because for them, it's just like, oh, we have to do this thing. But if we can show that you can make money and it's it's worth putting effort and energy and thought behind and you can also make money. It becomes like a mainstream, it just becomes fundamental to the industry rather than this thing that you got to, you have to do. So that really is, again, you know, kind of what, what we're aiming for here. And I think it sounds like other. Instead of it being like a category under Netflix, you know, like yeah, right. <laughs> South Asia story, which, you know, that's fine yeah. too. I'm not saying it feels like that step that had to be taken, I feel like. But I think since it's now out there, this feels like the, the next direction, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what America is. It's supposedly a melting pot, you know, we're all blended, you know, uh, and it's all sometimes it one. Sometimes it freezes, though, my friend. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, knows. don't get me started. <laughs> oh, we're going to start a little bit, I swear. I'm not going to keep you for more than an hour, I promise. <laughs> then I also read, well, so before coming on board, you did a campaign, I'm a Be Honest campaign about mental health in the Black community. Super interesting. I just checked it out. So tell me about that. And then also, we so need this for the South Asian community. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that, because that's super interesting. This was the first thing Labide and I worked on was this campaign. So they had released a film called A Snowy Day in Oakland. It's now on Hulu. I mean, it has a great cast and, and that sort of thing. And, and the film talks about mental health issues in the African-American community. And so we designed a campaign that basically would take half of the proceeds from streaming and put them into creating life coaching certificates for, and there's, there's companies and people that do this, for barbers and hairdressers in communities of color. 
Because oftentimes, especially in communities of color, you're opening up to your barber or your hairdresser more than you are to a therapist. It's still very much taboo. I mean, and you know, in our community too, it's like, oh, but there's places that you'll open up. And in, in certain communities, that's that's at the bar in the barbershop. And so what we thought was to tap into these barbershop networks. Again, there's these certifications that people can get. So once they're certified, they can then listen out for triggers. So if people are saying things that might endanger themselves or the community or, or just general things that people can provide real-time feedback on to help them get through a particular thing or just listen, you know, actively listen or, you know, that, that type of thing. We wanted to help fund that type of thing in communities. And so part of the role that I'll be playing in the studio is to help design some of those things too, alongside the content. So you're not only putting something up on, on screen that people are consuming, but you're also then getting into communities through the uh, venue of the film, through the star power behind the film, and hopefully then having real conversations and real impact. Like that hopefully will turn into a whole movement where people are now like, you know, seeing their barbers in a different way. And those barbers can get maybe more resources to be able to fund the work that they do and, and that type of thing. So that was the idea behind that campaign. Super amazing. How empowering for those barbers. I will tell you as a woman that goes to get my hair done, I talk to my hairdresser all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, she's not South Asian or if anything. If I had but... hair, if I had hair, I would too. <laughs> Maybe you're a manicurist. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I do. Actually, I do. I do get manicures and pedicures. So does my so husband. Do. You got to do it. Those, I do talk. It's like, boy, <laughs> those toes are nasty. Please go. <laughs> and, and kind of uh, turning it back to the South Asian community, I would love for to see something like that in our community, but I'm going to straight up say it. It feels like it would be harder to do just because our culture is so much more judgmental. Like, I don't think I would ever open up personally, unless they're friends, but to a random South Asian person. I don't know. And maybe that's just stuck in our heads. Maybe it's a narrative we've built. Like, I don't know. How do you feel? Yeah, there's like this, you're right, stigma around it right. still. And I think it just feeds into like the entire thing sometimes in our communities where it's just about optics and, you know, sort of how you are presented and, you know, whatever the like superficial stuff. What's that, that Hindi are, are saying? Community. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think though, especially people, I think our age and younger are changing the conversation. And now there's like actual organizations that are outward facing, supporting people with their mental health issues. I think, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I have seen a therapist. I've gone through counseling. I've done that sort of stuff because I, I suffer from depression. I suffer from anxiety, I, those sorts of things. And so it is, I think, important to talk about it and make it acceptable in our community because it's not anything that's, that should be, you know, anyone should be ashamed of. And in fact, it's a value, it should be a value. I definitely agree that the younger generation, God, we're such aunties and uncles. We're like the younger generation, <laughs> but it's true. They are, they're opening yeah. up about this. Social media obviously is a big catalyst for this. My mom and dad have been in India for a couple of months. Just, you know, every time I talk to them, there's a cousin or a kaka or a mama, some issue going on. And I, I was telling my mom, I'm like, this is mental health. This is a mental health crisis there. No one talks about it especially in middle-class India, like it's so yeah. bad, you know, and that's, yeah, yeah, they exactly. won't even broach, they won't even approach the subject. There's just no way. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And it's hard to break that 
especially in the auntie-uncle generation, it's, it's really hard to break into that or break that down. I mean, I think it almost is what it is. And, and we have a responsibility, I think, with our kids and some of the folks behind us to, to maybe change that. Yeah, I mean, we're not aunties and uncles yet, though, right? No, no. <laughs> just just want to confirm. We're cool. We're cool. We get manicures and pedicures. We're, cool. we're fine. We're good. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your team. So I know you, is it Labid? He's, I guess, the CEO. He's the CEO. He's the CEO of it. Okay. And then uh, what about the rest of your team? How many people do you guys have? Are you guys expanding? Yeah, we're expanding. I mean, again, it's still very much a startup. So Labid and I, and then um, this guy, Andy Cosby, who I mentioned, who is the creative director and has done just behind, you know, a number of different projects that, that people are very familiar with. You know, like I said, John Wick and Hellboy and Eureka and, you know, just a, a bunch of things like that. So him, a guy named Adele Noor, who did a bunch of the 30 for 30s on ESPN, including my favorite one about the Fab Five, a few others that are a part of the team right now, too, that just part of the core team. So it's a good group uh, and I'm excited. I'm excited also to see all the partnerships you guys collaborate with. I'm sure there's there's a ton. On top of everything else that you're doing, I mean, I feel like you're running the world, but you are, is this, I don't know, is this a recent thing? Are you the founding partner in a venture capital fund called the United Dream Fund? Is that now? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So this fund supports immigrant entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we started the fund. <laughs> I know it sounds like a lot. No, I mean, it's amazing. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, how are you standing? So we, no wonder you have no hair. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I lost that a long time. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you the story behind that at some oh, point. Oh, yeah, you have but, to. Um, <laughs> yeah. So United Dream Fund, we started actually a couple of years ago and it, it was sort of dormant while I was running the Beto campaign. And then recently we partnered with a few other people to relaunch it. Again, in the early stages of that, my role within it is sort of, you know, I'm helping to fundraise and that type of thing, but we have other people actually running the fund. So I'm um, sort of an advisor to it and that sort of thing, but I help found it and launch it. So that's, that's pretty new as well, you're saying? Pretty new as well. Yeah. Yeah. But the whole idea is to capitalize, especially immigrant founders at a pre-seed stage. Okay. So, so and, and you're looking yeah. at all sorts of industries. There's a specifically media. Yeah, all sorts of industries. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, like we have a whole due diligence and, you know, that sort of thing. And the idea is to to make money back for investors. But it's always um, about the money. You know, so yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. But yeah, of the unicorn companies, I mean, we the immigrants is disproportionate in terms of who have founded those and who are running those. They're usually immigrants. But the access to capital and networks to help support recent immigrants starting these businesses is nil. There's a handful. And so what we thought is let's let's create something where these people who are otherwise successful also can tap into networks and resources and capital to be able to help push their business forward. I mean, that's half of it, right? Because as smart, intelligent, great ideas are awesome, but at the end of the day, if you don't have that network or access, it's hard to push through. It's, yeah. the, it's the other half yeah. of the, the battle. So that's that's awesome. Totally. And then on top of it, the other thing you're doing, which I want to hang out with you on this, you are building <laughs> the first ever sneaker and streetwear museum in Texas, Houston. <laughs> what? Yeah. Why wouldn't you tell me about this? This is amazing. I mean, I'm excited about everything else too, but this is... Yeah. I mean, all of this stuff is new, and but it's, it's moving forward. So we have a space in Houston. Oh my God. Uh, we have... 
investors coming in, you know, we're talking with people like Bun B and others down in Houston to like build this thing. And we have, I mean, I've been a huge sneakerhead all my life, but I didn't even realize there's like sneaker historians and people like that, that I'm now getting connected to that are like a part of this thing. So it's going to be pretty cool as we build it. It'll probably be another year or so before it's fully standing and, and all of it, but it has really great momentum, a lot of energy behind it, and it's going to be fun. Oh my God, so, I'm so excited. I, you'll be there. You'll be there. Yeah, yes, I'll yeah. be DJing the opening party, my friend, for yeah. sure. Oh yeah, you can DJ it and yep. whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got my equipment <laughs> right here. Good to go. Why Houston, by the way? Well, actually, that's where these partners were based. Also, Houston's sort of emerging as this sort of cultural place, you know, where, where a lot of things are started coalescing. And you know, I spent, I spent a lot of time there, met some great people, and it's just a great spot to, to do it, I think. so. And there'll be traveling exhibits, you know, around the country and that type of thing as part of it. But we wanted the base to be in a place that's up and coming like Houston. That's awesome. I'll be there. I'll be DJing. Just, I'm already volunteering myself. Oh, yeah. No, you're yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing. Um, okay. We can sell your hats there. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Let's do it. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm a sneakerhead too. That's all I wear. Don't hate. Oh, cool. I hate heels, so I, I'm down. I can totally see. That. Yeah, I know. I try. I try to be girly for a while, and now I'm over it. I'm like, oh, it's too tiring. I was like, he's not going to leave me now. We're married. It's fine. <laughs> Look, your 20 years of experience in the political arena. I have two pages of notes right now, and I'm not going to bore you about everything you've done because you know. So I'll do that. Do that in the intro, but. I know I asked you at the panel in DC a little bit about this, but because there was five other people, we couldn't get really into it. Beto, the whole experience. And, and I know when we talked on the side, you can just, your face lit up talking about it. You looking back now, hindsight, how do you feel about the whole thing? I know there were, you told me so many stories, but if you, if you had to describe it in one word or what's your emotions about it now? I just thought it was so powerful what happened you know, that you're in a state that is otherwise considered deeply red. You have this charismatic figure coming out of El Paso, Texas, of all places. And he sort of captured the imagination of the entire state with the way he campaigned, going from town to town, small city to large city, talking about issues that matter to anyone who would listen, didn't write anyone off. And when he asked me about running the campaign, I initially said no because I was like, this is tough. I have a family. I'm in Virginia. So many things. And he knew it was going to be an uphill battle. But he also knew that in Texas, especially over the last several years, there have been incredible attacks on women's reproductive health, on immigrants, on the LGBTQ community, on so many things that are fundamentally care about and so many other people fundamentally care about that if he didn't run and we didn't try, that they would have not been checked. And at the very least, I think what we were able to do was further highlight the, what's been going on, draw people in, and I think have galvanized people for the future in Texas. And so even though we didn't win the campaign, I think we will win in the long run. I think we catapulted or, you know, uh, this, this effort now in Texas of trying to flip the states. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a, a win in, in many, many ways. 
And you just love Texas. Texas people are the best, right? So <laughs> Texas people are. I mean, I fell in love. I fell in love with Texas. Yeah. And I mean, the food I put on like I mean, 15 <laughs> pounds. The food is just incredible. What was it mainly the, the Tex-Mex? What was it? Tex-Mex and barbecue. Yeah. Yeah, that can <laughs> yeah. get to you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then straight up Mexico. I mean, like going down to like the border communities, that sort of thing. Oh, the God, food is so just good. incredible down on a side note, we just went to Belize in December, just the four of us, for the husband's birthday. He doesn't like celebrating. So we just do trips with him. We took a road trip from Belize to Guatemala to see Tikal. I was just thinking about this because I'm still dreaming. We had the best street food. I mean, <laughs> I'm like having dreams about it. It was just so... Oh, wow. That I've never incredible. had a breakfast. I had like five breakfast tacos and almost threw up. Oh. It was so good. Anyways, <laughs> I don't know why I just thought of that when you talk, when you were talking about it. No, I can relate. I know yeah, so good. That's awesome. <laughs> so it's the election year, as you may know. How are you feeling about all this? You've obviously been behind the wall. You understand a lot more of what's going on than the rest of us do. What is your anxiety level on this election year? The rest of us are like beat down, anxious, not looking forward to it. Everything kind of feels like defeated right now. So help us, <laughs> help us understand. I am also at a point of anxiety and anxiousness around this election. And I think the stakes have become so high. We got a taste of what it was like to get Donald Trump as president and he now has the benefit of <laughs> his experience during that time. And I think it's just going to go scorched earth. And so what I'm afraid of is, especially if he gets elected, immediately there's a bunch of people that will fall in harm's way. I mean, it's, it's poor people, it's young people, it's immigrants. It could be, you know, it's a whole host of people that I don't know if people who say, oh, you know, I don't care one way or the other, or Biden's too, who are complaining on the edges about certain things that truly understand what the impact could potentially be. So that makes me very nervous. I'm also just super pissed at the Democrats. I just like, how are we in this position where this person who we teach our kids to be exactly the opposite of a liar, a cheat, arrogant, you name the adjective, is now competitive after we've seen what he's capable of. And, and to me, that's not, not anything. I mean, it's fine with Trump, whatever. But it, to me, it's an indictment on the inability of Democrats to connect with people and to be able to meet people where they're at. Yeah, why is that? What is it? How do you explain that? I don't even understand. I mean, we try to change that in the Texas race with Beto. You know, like we were on the ground. We were listening to people, talking back to people. It was like it had a different energy to it. And we weren't speaking in D.C. speak, you know, whereas I think people here in D.C. where I'm at, they're in this bubble. And they overfocus group or over poll test or over the and try to get the perfect language to be able to connect to this, this and this type of demographic. And I think when you do that, you lose the authenticity, you lose the ability to connect. And that's what's happened, I think, unfortunately, to Democrats nationally. So too polished, maybe too polished, too overthinking, polished. maybe too overthinking, yeah. too just, you know, not really realizing what people are. So I think that when you have that, uh, you, you just totally miss people. Who do you blame for that, though? How do you blame for these kind of communications? Is it, I mean, is there <laughs> anyone to really blame? Or is it just generally the... there's like a particular person. I just think it's sort of the way Democrats have operated. You know, I think it's just, it's been that for a little while now. And I think it's sort of 
when you kind of win, it just reinforces, okay, yeah. But I don't know whether, I don't think, uh, in fact, I know, it's not because of anything we're saying or doing. It's because like, we don't want Donald Trump or we don't want this Herschel Walker. You know, we don't want, we're not really giving a proactive vision. And so at some point, those chickens are going to come home to roost. And I, I hope it's not this next election. I'm supposed to <laughs> cut back on drinking this year, but I don't know. With this election, dude, I'm just like, uh. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I'm, I'm worried about, the, the way to think about this, it, it really does boil down to a few states, a handful of states. So it's like Georgia and Michigan and Arizona and, you know, and, and then the Midwest states. So you've got to really think about what it means in those states. And if Trump is beating Biden, you know, right now in polling by eight points in Michigan, where do you go then to pick up, you know, a state? And those options are pretty limited. So that's what's really scary is you really got to think about the granularity of like how you're going to, what is the path to victory in these states? And if they're not connecting to the folks in Michigan, they got to figure that out because the path is really, really narrow right now for both. And he has a movement behind him, Trump, and we need to figure out what we're going to do to counter that. So, Organizations like Impact, we need to support them as much as possible during this time as yeah, well. I agree. Any thoughts, and you don't have to, if you don't have any, it's fine. It's, it's kind of a fun question. Any thoughts on a um, cert certain South Asian who dropped out of the race recently? Oh, <laughs> I mean, oh my God. Like, I, you know, there are like these stereotypes of Indian men. And I feel like this guy was like the Frankenstein of that, you know, like just total whatever, you know, like Napoleon complex, like blowhard, like arrogant, like not listening to it. Just like every single thing you can think about that South Asian men get accused of all into one character. He wrapped it up I really, really nicely. Yeah, he did really well, <laughs> yeah. really well. And somehow, yeah, got attention. I, if he would have been the nominee, I would have done anything to get in the, to get a campaign to just try to beat him because it was embarrassing that he was sort of the standard bearer of what, you know, we were looking at this, this election cycle. I was <laughs> actually talking to someone. I couldn't watch any of the debate. I mean, I, I would watch a little bit, but I would just, I, I yeah. couldn't. I was like, I'm getting dumber. <laughs> I was talking to someone about this. I would love to interview him. Yeah, I would love for you to interview him. I want to dissect him. I want to be like, dude, let's talk. Have a cup of cha, calm down. Like, right. <laughs> what, what happened to you, dude? What's, what's happening? Let's, yeah. let's go back what to childhood. What? Something happened to you as a child? And in all seriousness, like just yeah, so, yeah. so curious as to how that was created. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I mean... Like I said, I think it's it's reflective of elements of some of us. And I wonder how that turned into like this thing. Yeah, I, I, it would be fascinating to hear that. My theory on it, and it's a very simple theory, but all of us have a little, to a degree, PTSD growing up brown in America, right? Some more, some less. I think yeah. I think his was just super high. I feel like <laughs> I mean, simply I put, so too. I don't know. Yeah, something must have happened where either with his parents or family or growing up, where he just has like these incredible insecurities and constantly needs to sort of prove himself. I'm guessing so. there was like a third grade bully named John or something that like screwed him over. Yeah. I don't know. But like yeah. you said, we all had that. I yeah. Had, you know, I grew up in Nebraska. So. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. You definitely had that for sure. Maybe the, again, that's maybe another story why you lost your hair. 
We'll get to that though. Yeah, it could be. Could be. It could, could be. be. <laughs> and I have to ask you this. I think you answered this in DC, but I forgot what you said. Has there ever been a time you thought about running yourself? Yeah, actually. And there is a chance I might still. So ever since I was a kid, I've just had it in me. And even last time around 2021 in Virginia, I was getting asked to run for lieutenant governor in, in, in the Commonwealth. So I'm considering, I'm considering it. So we'll see. No big deal. Just add it on to your, to your resume. Yeah. <laughs> your wife is like, seriously? <laughs> I know. Oh my God. She is a saint. I mean, we all ha- are busy and crazy, but how, is, how has she been able to handle your schedule? Well, the Texas race in particular was really difficult because I was gone. I mean, I had an apartment in Houston. I was commuting back and forth. And she is incredible. And my kids are incredible for being able to just think of the big picture. I think both Nir and I realize like the privilege that we've had. And, and you know, I, I, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but I grew up poor. I grew up whatever. And, and to be able to in the position I am now and to be asked to do something of that magnitude, I think we both realized like there was not a choice and we were both going to suck it up for a year and do this thing. And she just has that in her, which is just really, it's incredible. Who you marry makes all the difference. Yeah. I mean, I don't think most people would have put up with that. And I wouldn't have been able to do that or, or some of the things I have in my past as well, like White House or any of that stuff, because it's not, it's not immediate that some, you have a, a partner that would support that. Yeah. I mean, this is, we'll be married 15 years this year. And I always tell people that are, you know, single or, you know, dating, I'm like, you know, I, the main thing, yeah, love, blah, blah, blah. But like, really at the end of the day, the person you marry should allow you to grow and not try to change. I mean, of course not try to change you or anything, but grow in the way that you need to grow. Yeah. Let you be you, Yeah, you know, and I think that's really hard in every way because what you're doing is trying to merge two personalities, two experiences, two lives together. And that there's constant tension in that, you know, and, and then to, you know, oh, hey, I got to be me. You know, like, <laughs> I know, you're like, F you, man. Too, right? Fine, be you. Well, therapy, yeah. therapy is good. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. I highly recommend Yeah, yeah. No, totally. Same. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about Nebraska. Let's talk about you growing up because as a South Asian podcast, of course, I want to understand your relationship with being brown and how that's changed over the years. Thank you. Just to go back a little bit, my family was converted to Christianity, my, my dad's side, two generations prior to me in Gujarat. So we are Gujarati Christians. And they took a liking to these missionaries came in and there was like this mass conversion that would occur in these villages. For whatever reason, they took a liking to my grandfather, these missionaries, and they paid for his schooling in the United States to become a preacher. And then he sent my dad here, and my dad became a preacher. He was a preacher in rural Nebraska. So after seminary, which is what you do to, to, to become a preacher, he got an internship in this town in Nebraska. And the town had maybe 600 people in it. So if you can imagine this like Indian uncle preaching to this all-farming white audience, that was like the bulk of my childhood. Okay, I need so to interview your home- dad now. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> it's pretty insane. Incredible. Were they were they accepting of him? Just imagine an Indian uncle. I mean, you know, accent, all of it. He was that. It was really hard. I mean, so they moved us around every seven years. The, the Methodist Church does this, 
And we would move from small town to my small town and my dad would be the, the preacher within it. And yeah, in the beginning, he was not accepted. I mean, it was, I, I, some people would accept it. Some people were like, I don't understand him. You know, who is this guy? And all of that sort of thing. And, you know, he's different and his family's different. And it even translated into how much he would get paid. So I, I later found out that he would be making maybe twelve to $15,000 a year. And when we moved, the white preacher that would come behind him would get double or triple that salary. And so he, this is in the church. This is supposed to be people of God, you know, like all of that stuff. You're not supposed to see color or race. Right. right. Yeah. Right. All of it. Right. Just all God's children. But we're going to pay you all differently and treat you differently. Yeah, but we so, like the first son better than so, the second son. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, growing up, I was always like this other. So I, I was the United Nations of, of our town. I was the Daisy guy. I was the black guy. I was, was going to say, Latino they probably called you the black guy or they didn't yeah, even know where to put yeah. you, right? So it's black or white. They called me. I mean, I was called the N-word probably almost every day, I would feel like, like constantly it, it was. I would get in fights and... It really shaped who I was, though, you know, that that even though it was painful and tough and I had, you know, not to say everyone was like that, but there were people like that. And I did have some really, really great friends who I'm still very, very close to now. And they're farmers in Nebraska and they're cops in Nebraska. And they are people like that that are, you know, just really salt of the earth that I still go back to. And those communities are incredible. So I don't want to disparage totally. But there was this sort of you know, growing up like that as a brown kid in those areas, like you were different and treated differently. And that was really tough. And so I felt always other. And then with Daisy's, I also didn't feel accepted because my name is Nicholas. I'm from Nebraska. I am Christian. I'm, you know, all of those sorts of things. So I always had this thing where I was just, I never was like, I never knew who I was or in some ways it was hard, but in others, it created a deep empathy within me. And I'm able to relate to so many different types of people as a result of that, which also then has helped me, you know, in my career in politics, especially. And so coming out of that situation, I think really, really helped, helped hone me and create the person I am today. You're my 140th episode. I have not heard a immigration <laughs> story like that. That is very yeah. unique. Yeah. I just assumed your name was like Neil or something. And like, you just changed yeah. it. To, I was like, okay, it must be like something like that, something Guju. And yeah. he just changed it to Nick for political reasons or whatever. Did not expect yeah. your name to be Nicholas. <laughs> yeah. No, Nicholas. You know, because we didn't have a lot of money, I started working in the cornfields and bean fields when I was probably about 13 years old to help our family out and that sort of thing. So you imagine a little brown boy early in the morning in the summer working in these bean fields, pulling, you know, the weeds or detasseling yeah. or that sort of thing. Yeah. That was, um, you know, who I was. Besides, obviously, the hardships you went through. That's a pretty amazing way to grow up because I do agree with you. So I obviously I didn't I grew up in Houston, but because of the husband's job and moving around so much the past 15 years, living in Dubai, then India, it wasn't Nebraska, but even living in Bentonville for a few years, which is, you know, it's still a bigger town, but living in Arkansas, which to me, I was like, are brown people allowed in Arkansas? But becoming friends with people with completely different political beliefs, right? Like even those few years as an adult changed me, you know? So I can't imagine for you as a child, part of your like DNA to really understand people. And I know for me having lived and then, you know, living in New York and then whatever it is, all of that, like you has helped me connect 
with my podcast guests now. Like I can kind of come from all angles, right? And I have friends that are Trump lovers, but there's no wrong or right here. We have to start listening to each other. And I know probably like like me, you have a lot of friends, liberal East Coast, West Coast friends that stay in their bubbles as well. And so I think it's really cool that you were out of your bubble for so long. I was. And it really, like you said, fortified me. It was a foundation for my life to be able to experience that. And now go back. I mean, you know, I recently went back this last summer, my high school honored uh, my sister and I, and I was able to speak to like the kids, you know, these high schoolers and these middle schoolers about my experience. And like, I talked about being other, I talked about being different. And I think all of them can relate in in a way because they're like, well, you know, I'm from small town, Nebraska. I don't know if I can ever make it out, but I see you doing that. Or when I go talk to my friends, you know, back home, like, you know, like I said, one is a farmer, he's big time Trump guy. He's like, you know, all of those things. But when you listen and when you talk to people, they just want the same things for their kids that you and I want. And that's where I think we're just totally missing one another. And I hope that somehow we can find a way to get back to just real conversations with people because they're really good. They are good people. I think the only way to do that is actually talking to people in real life. You know, I don't think there's another way to cut, like, you can connect, but there's no better way, you know, like getting back to the roots of it. Is your family still there then? Or where are your parents at? My parents are still in Nebraska. How awesome. I want to come visit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you should I actually. I love that. So my hometown, the town they're in now was where Kool-Aid was invented. Oh my God. So there's a, there's a Kool-Aid museum. We went back this summer. I brought the kids for Kool-Aid days where it's like a Kool-Aid festival. <laughs> so you got to meet me in Hastings, Nebraska for that. Cause it's, I mean, Kool-Aid was the bomb, fun. dude. Like that was, that and Oval, right. that and I Oval Team. It, I, was, I was good to go. That was like my Kool-Aid daily. Kool-Aid contributed to like the di- like diabetes. Yeah. And, like the, <laughs> and the Pop-Tarts didn't help either. And the pop, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those but three. It, yeah. it is, it's really wholesome. So yeah, no, my parents are still there. Okay. My brother and sister are actually out here in, in Virginia. Okay. So. And what a full circle moment for you going back to your high school. How awesome going back to your high school, getting honored. What does your sister do? What is she doing? So she's head of global cyber for Citibank. She was in the FBI for a number of years and she worked her way up to be like a section chief in the FBI and then transitioned out and is an expert on cybersecurity. And then my younger brother uh, has his own law firm in DC as well. So he's he does plaintiff side litigation, but started his own law firm, and now he's he's also doing pretty well. Man, your parents really messed you guys up. <laughs> I mean, what was in the water there? Holy God, what kind of family? That's amazing. Think, oh, thank you. I think it really was though, just coming up the way we did. Yeah. You know, like there was just a lot of factors that I think contributed to it, and so I think uh, we were, you know, we 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 got lucky. Well, shout out to your to uncle and auntie, man. That's um, uh, thank you. <laughs> it, you know, we our parents have done so much for us. You know, and you, obviously, Yo, as as you man. get older, you realize, man, like they oh, they're the OGs. They're the entrepreneurs. They're the OGs. Yeah, we're all standing on their shoulders. I mean, to, for them to come in the way they did, to build the lives they did, and to give us the opportunities that we have had. I mean, never in my wildest dreams would I have like you know, even thought or for my dad who grew up in this village in rural India to be able to like, I 
got to take him to meet President Obama oh. in the Oval Office. You know, like when were you crying? Um, I, I would have been crying. I'm about to cry right oh, now. Oh yeah, I'm about to cry now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then like I was able to travel with President Obama to India when he went the first time, and he spoke at my mom's college. Think about that full circle in one generation from like poverty to be going with the president of the United States in a motorcade to my mom's school. I mean, just that entire thing is like, you know, the reason all of our parents came here is to like have that sort of opportunity. And and, um, yeah, it's really, I think, amazing and powerful. Yeah. You know, I know you have kids. I have two kids. I'm just... Obviously, I know we're good parents, but I'm like, man, I don't, I, I don't know if I can be a better person than my mom and dad. Like, I just feel like they're just, no. there's just a, our parents are a whole different level than us. A whole different yeah. level. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah. and obviously, like they were figuring it out. Like we're trying to figure yeah. it out. There's no perfect thing, and we, you know, we did have probably our own kind of growing pains from, yeah. from you know, how they even were relating to us, but. In the end, what they were able to do is just, it's incredible. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely gets yeah. us emotional. And I mean, yeah. those kids in Nebraska that are making fun of you, you can tell them to suck it now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I do. I, do. <laughs> I mean, come on, you need to be a little well, bit petty. It, it, was, it was full circle coming back and getting you know this award because I was like, for so much of my time there, I was the other Yeah, and not seen. And to come back wow. and to be seen in that way was really, really amazing. I love so. that story. If I had come with you, I would yeah. have spray painted their lockers, whoever was bugging you. Just, <laughs> just saying, next time, if you need my back, we'll do it for you. Or egg their houses. I, I used, I used to egg houses in high school, so I can do that too. Oh, yeah, yeah. me too. Yeah, yeah obviously. So we can, we'll yeah. go back, do the Kool-Aid thing, and egg some houses. It'll be fun. <laughs> then, I can't wait for Then that. I don't know if that's going to hurt your uh, campaign for running for whatever, but it could, <laughs> you know. It could. It might also help. We should record it. And um, yeah, because it, it's sort of like a comeback story for all of the people. Who, yeah, the underdog, know, the ultimate know, underdog story. Who doesn't yeah, love an ultimate yeah. underdog story? Right. Yeah. <laughs> this should be like a film. You should make a film about yourself. <laughs> Done. Next project. <laughs> okay, we're going to do a quick fast round. So first thing that comes okay. to your mind. Ultimate collab for 2024. Oh, man. Oh, uh, Jay-Z. Best concert you've ever been to? Beyonce. Dinner party with three people, dead or alive? Oh, wow. Muhammad Ali, Barack Obama, and Oprah. Very solid. I'll be there. (laughs) Biggest pet peeve? Just people who are mean to people. You know, just, yeah. Yeah, assholes. Assholes. Those those third grade bullies, basically. Yeah. Biggest fear? Failing. Alternate reality. If you weren't doing this, well, you're doing like 12 things, but <laughs> if you weren't doing these 12 things, what would you, what would you be doing? I would love to be like a DJ. Something, you can I'd do like it. You. I'm I doing mean, it. I mean, I, like, yeah. I suck, but I'm doing it. <laughs> I want to be you. <laughs> I don't know if you have a bucket list, but if you do have a bucket list, what's one thing you want to do this year with the family or personally? With the family... I want to be able to travel more. And professionally, I want us to be able to fully capitalize the studio. Awesome. I'm so excited to hear more about the studio this year. This is very cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to tell you more and hopefully show you more. Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Genie Media with Jeannie Saraswathi, Ashley Tuff, 
Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts.